Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If someone asked you what the church believes about God, how would you answer that? What if someone asked you that about yourself? What do you believe about God? Describe him to me. What would you say? It's actually a very biblical question. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. So, if you're a Christian in the room, how would you answer that question? Actually, our answer might reveal whether we are Christian or not. Many people believe themselves to be faithful biblical Christians and yet hold beliefs that fall outside the bounds of orthodox Christian belief. Sociologist Christian Smith wrote a book in 2005 called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This was his attempt to see how American teenagers would answer the questions that I just asked of us. Were they religious? And if so, who was God to them? How would they describe him? He summarized the data he collected by coining the phrase moralistic, therapeutic deism. Some may have heard that phrase before. That is what the religious beliefs of American teenagers looked like, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic because God just wants people to be fair and nice to each other and that good people get to go to heaven when they die. Therapeutic Because the goal of life is to be happy, to feel good about oneself. That's all God really wants for you, is to have a good self-esteem. And deism, because while God created the world, he really doesn't have anything to do with it, except if there's a big problem, then he'll, he'll get involved. Now, since the publication of Smith's work in 2005, further research has been done. And it shows that these beliefs stretch well beyond American teenagers. The phrase moralistic therapeutic deism captures what much of Western people believe, including many in the church, regardless of age. Certainly I've run into many people who hold this belief system. People tell me all the time that they try to be nice and kind, and do good things, and so since they do all of that, then things will work out for them. People just need to be nicer. That will make God happy, and after all, good things happen to good people. Why am I telling you all of this? Because moralistic therapeutic deism might be popular, but it is utterly heartbreaking because it is profoundly unbiblical. It's the gospel according to the power of positive thinking. The gospel according to self-esteem, self-actualization, and self-help. It's the gospel according to pop psychology, and it is in no way the gospel according to Jesus Christ. These are secular understandings of God that have seeped into the church, and so we need to turn back now to Scripture 
and see for ourselves whether these things are true or not. Our passage from Isaiah this morning will help us to do just that. For in Isaiah, we are given an image of God that shatters the popular notions of who he is, who we are, and what we need. Let's start with the image of God that we see in our passage from Isaiah, starting at the beginning of our reading. You can follow along if you like. We have an insert in your bulletin for you that you can track with. The beginning of our passage reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is immediately presented with an image of God's majesty. God sits enthroned, ruling over all things, and his greatness is so vast that it fills the temple. Now, you may have noticed that at no point is there a description of what God looks like. There is only a description of his posture, seated, and of his robes. Now, think about this. You would think that if you had an encounter with God, if you were brought before God, you might want to remember exactly what he looked like. And yet Isaiah doesn't spend a single word on that. It's because he can't. He can't describe him. He is brought into the presence of one who is so other, so beyond our understanding or imagining that all he can do is to describe his posture and robes. That is how great God is. He is undescribable. This image of God is only heightened in verse 3. When we hear the angels calling from one to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, God's glory filling the whole earth is pretty important. That's an image we want to hold on to. But what we really want to pay attention for today is what came just before that. Holy, holy, holy. The reason that matters is because the level of emphasis being placed on God's holiness. In English, if we want to emphasize something, we would use a superlative. So, for example, take my stole. If I wanted to, say, highlight or emphasize the whiteness of my stole, I would say this is a very white stole, or this is the whitest stole I have ever seen. By the way, this is a stole that I'm wearing right here, for anyone who doesn't know. I know not everybody's up on their liturgical vestment lingo. So that's what we do in English. In Hebrew, they do something different to show emphasis. They repeat the word. They double it. So in the example of my stole, in Hebrew, if I wanted to emphasize the whiteness of the stole, I would say it is a white, white stole. I would double the word. Now knowing that, Look again at what the angels say. Holy, holy, holy. Doubling would emphasize God's holiness. But this is tripled. And that's actually really important. Because it's taking the description of God's holiness to a whole new level. It's saying that God is absolutely, indescribably Holy, that is who Isaiah is being brought before. Now let's stop for a second. 
Does what I just described to you sound at all how you would describe God? If you were asked to describe God, how long would it take until you got to unmeasurable holiness? Do you think of him as someone who is so other, so different than all the rest of creation, or than all of creation, I should say, that we can't even describe him? Someone who is so perfect and pure that if we came in direct contact with him, we would be crushed by it. That doesn't sound like the way we often talk about God, does it? Nor does it sound like the God of moralistic therapeutic deism, but that is the biblical view of God. Let's think about this for a moment. When I was describing the God who Isaiah saw, what did you think? Truthfully, some would hear that and they would completely reject it. That's not my God. My God's my buddy. He's there to make me feel good, to help me when I need him. He's supposed to make me feel good about myself and my life. That's what Christian Smith found in his study. Or maybe the response is, well, that's the Old Testament God. Isaiah's in the Old Testament. That's how they viewed him. That's not Jesus. No, Jesus is far more appealing than that, far more inviting. He's forgiving and gracious and loving and not at all concerned about holiness. Friends, if your opinion of Jesus excludes holiness and otherness, I want to urge you, when you leave here today, go home and read Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, John encounters Jesus, and Jesus is described as being so pure and holy that John falls at his feet as if he was dead. That is who our God is. That is who Jesus is, indescribably, perfectly, powerfully holy. How do you respond to that? Do you recoil at him? Do you run away from him? Do you reject him entirely? Or do you respond as the angels did? With worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is our God. Now if that is who our God is, what do we see about who we are? We see that in the face of God's perfect holiness, our sinfulness is completely exposed. We spend a lot of time in the church talking about how God uses all people, not just the best and the brightest. And that's true. Well, Isaiah is the exception to the rule. He is the best and the brightest. His work shows he was a brilliant and gifted man. Jewish tradition tells us that he was a member of the royal household and that he thought rather a lot of himself. And yet, he encounters the holiness of God and what happens? He's undone by it. Verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, he says. The word translated lost, it has two literal meanings, neither of which is actually lost. Lost is an interpretation, a helpful interpretation, on what's actually happening here. But the literal translations bring out some helpful details for us. 
One of those meanings is to be cut off. What a great word to use in this situation, since that is exactly the effect of sin. It cuts us off from God, because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Lost can also be translated as to be silenced. Now, this is not the silenced of, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm not going to say anything. This is the silence of death. I am cut off. I have fallen silent as if dead. That is the biblical presentation of the effects of sin right there in one word. It cuts us off from God and it leads to death. Isaiah, the best and the brightest that the Jewish world had to offer at the time in the presence of God, has his sin exposed. He feels cut off from God to the point of death. Now let's stop again for a second. Think about our cultural understanding of God. You know, the belief that getting to heaven is all about being good and nice. Well, in the face of the picture that we have just seen, God's holiness and our sinfulness, how flimsy does that sound? Isaiah later on tells us that even our righteous deeds, all our goodness and kindness are like filthy rags in comparison to God's holiness. Here's the truth. If you believe that God is perfect in holiness, if you believe that in the face of God's holiness, even our best deeds are like rags, as Isaiah did, you can't possibly believe that going to heaven is about how good you are. Yet I hear it all the time. I just try to be nice, treat others with kindness. That's all that matters. No, friends, it isn't. There is no level of goodness, no level of niceness that we could ever attain that would allow us to stand before the perfect holiness of God. There is nothing we can do to bridge the gap between him and us, between his holiness and our sinfulness. Why am I telling you all of this? So we can all go home and feel terrible about ourselves? It's Father's Day, so I'm trying to take all the dads in the room down a peg because they've been praised all day. No. It's because if we don't first understand God's perfect holiness and our terrible sinfulness, then we will never understand how great our need is. Isaiah is being crushed by the weight of his sin, and what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is brought before the perfect, holy God, and he is exposed completely. He sees the weight of his sin, and he acknowledges it. He admits that he is sinful. In a word, he repents. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When we consider the holiness of God, if we don't have the same sort of reaction, we either think way too low of God or way too high of ourselves.
proper view of his holiness and our sinfulness, though, should drop us to our knees in repentance, in desire to be forgiven by him, to confess that we have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. And what happens when we repent? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Did you notice that Isaiah did nothing but repent? but acknowledge his need for God. He didn't go out and do all the right things. He wasn't really, really nice to people, and then everything was right. Woe is me. Lord, I need you. I am sinful. You are perfect. Would you help me? It's the cry of a heart that has begun to see God rightly, and God moves the second the words come out of his mouth. The verbs taken away and atone here are in the perfect tense. It means that their action was immediate and instantaneous. It was completed and it had lasting effect. Nothing else was required. And when the repentance happened, God moved. And this, my friends, is a mere foretaste of the great act of atonement that was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. In his death, he atoned for the sin of the world for all time. And because of that, if we repent of our sin, if we believe in his name, we can come before the presence of God. We can encounter him and not be crushed by it. The word atone means to cover. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He atones for our sins and he covers us with his righteousness, so that when we are in the presence of God, we are no longer covered with filthy rags, but with his purity. We can boldly come before the throne of the perfect, holy God, because when he looks at us, when we believe in Jesus, and God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his perfect, matchless son. And those are the people who go to heaven. Not the ones who were really, really nice, but those who have been atoned for, who have been covered with Christ, who have seen the weight of their own sin and confessed their need for Jesus because they know he is the only one who can bridge the gap between God and us. We will never begin to appreciate what Jesus has done for us or our need for him if we don't first know the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And we will not receive his atoning work unless we repent of our sin. Continuing to live with unrepented sin is to act as if we can stand before the holy, righteous God on our own merits. It's saying we don't need Jesus. It's thinking that we don't need a Savior or that we can be our Savior. That's why I started our time together by mentioning moralistic therapeutic deism 
and how this cultural religion has seeped its way into the church. You see, the great flaw of this belief system is that it tragically misidentifies the problem. There's no room for holiness or sinfulness within it. These aren't things it even considers. There is no mention of a need for our Savior because it doesn't believe we need one. The problem isn't sin, it's that you don't think highly enough of yourself. If you had a higher self-esteem, then everything would be fine. Such a cultural religion, though, does nothing but pull us away from Jesus. It pulls us away from our actual Savior who solves our actual problem, which is being separated from God because of our sin. It leaves people looking in the mirror for a solution when it can only be found by lifting our eyes to God. Perhaps the saddest part about it all is that although it states that life is about happiness and feeling good about yourself and having a high self-esteem, it can never actually give us those things. The more it pulls us away from Jesus, the more it pulls us away from the one who reveals our true value. The truth is, if we want to know what we're worth, we first need to understand who God is, who we are, and our need for him. It is only in Christ that we can see how important and how valued we actually are. You know how valued you are? He knew we could never stand in the presence of his awesome holiness without being crushed by it, and so he made a way. Paul teaches us that God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. While we were yet sinners... Our perfect, holy, matchless Savior emptied himself of his divine rights and became a man so that he might die for us, atone for our sins. In doing so, he has made it possible for us to stand before God. We have all been told the lie for most of our lives that we can have perfect self-esteem by looking inside ourselves. We can try and get our value from thinking better about ourselves or by looking in the mirror and repeating some self-help mantra, but all of it will fail. God showed his love and our value to him by taking on flesh and rescuing the lost of the world, not because we did all the right things, not because we were nice to just the right amount of people and then he came, not because we attained the appropriate and necessary level of self-esteem. Simply because the majestic, ineffable, holy God of Isaiah's vision loves you. He cares about you. And he is so involved in the world that he came and died for you. Tell me then how much you are worth. How much are you valued? What does it do to your self-esteem to know that Christ gave himself for you? 
we want to know our true value, we need to know how much it cost Christ to win us back to himself. If we want to understand what Christ has done for us, then we must understand our need for him. If we want to understand our need for him, we must understand our terrible sinfulness. And if we want to understand our sinfulness, we need to begin to contemplate the perfect, awesome holiness of God. We began our time today asking, how would you describe God? Now at the end of our time, how would you describe God? He is ruler of all, whose perfect holiness lays our sinful hearts bare. And yet, he is the God who loves us and values us so much that he would come in the person of Jesus to save us so that we could be in a relationship with him and be with him for all eternity. As God gives us a glimpse of who he is, empty, hollow, self-help, power of positive thinking, pseudo-religious nonsense falls away, crushed by our holy God. And as we are shown his holiness, we join with the angels in songs of worship and praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a perfect and holy God. Thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners... You sent Christ for us. Christ died for us. Thank you that in him we can find our true value, our true worth. Would you free us from looking for it in other places, but in turning to you, see how much we actually matter. Open our hearts to your loving, gracious work that you have done for us. Bless us in the name of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.